Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn on Facebook Live. The topic is Thou Shalt Not Hate, Navigating Relationships in a Complex World. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Anyway, um, I'm going to be posting this uh, class. Um, which is really called the dual nature of Kirov, but I'm going to be twisting it a little to talk about the concept of hate in Judaism. Uh, when is it appropriate to hate? When is it not? And what can we do to prevent ourselves from coming to develop hatred for other people? Because uh, the Torah speaks to this very, very important issue. <clears throat> okay, so let's get started. Um, <clears throat> I want to read one verse from the Torah with you, one particular, hello Howard, now we can start Howard's online, um, there's one particular uh, pasuk in the Torah, one particular verse that teaches the prohibition of harboring hate for a fellow Jew, uh, like many of these commands that are found in the book of Leviticus, of love thy neighbor, they all refer specifically to one's um, fellow Jew, that's the neighbor, <clears throat> but uh, as I've always said, uh, just because you're only obligated to do something doesn't mean that the Torah wants you to keep it to only the person to whom you're obligated. Uh, so for example, when the Torah says that uh, you should love your neighbor as yourself, neighbor is defined, uh, neighbor is defined as someone who is uh, a fellow Jew, but we know that the great paradigm for loving one's neighbor and showing chesed, kindness to other people, was Abraham. And the people Abraham we see in the Torah who he showed kindness to were not necessarily Jewish or monotheists. We know that he invited people um, into his tent, um, and it says that he asked them to wash their feet. And uh, commentators explain that he asked them to wash their feet because their feet were filled with the dust from idol worship. So he clearly was extending kindness to people that were not like him. Um, he might not have been obligated to do that. The Torah only says, love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor referring to your fellow Jew. And the Torah is going to, as you'll see in the verse we're about to read, tell us about the prohibition of harboring hate, also technically only applying to a fellow Jew. But like any of these uh, models, we try to go beyond. Charity starts at home but it doesn't end at home. So we might be obligated technically in, in, in terms of the Torah only to do something vis-a-vis -a, -vis a fellow Jew, but the goal and the ideal would be for anyone. And I think, honestly, that the Torah, in its attempt to be a realistic approach to human existence, doesn't tell us love everyone like yourself, because that's just not realistic. It says love your neighbor, right? At least the people with whom you have a relationship that you have a connection, your fellow Jew. Same thing here. We're going to see the verse that speaks about not harboring hate. Start at least, or at least halachically, you're obligated to make sure that you don't harbor hate for a fellow Jew. Uh, it would be great to apply this to everyone, but it's more realistic to, at least in illegal, in illegally, to say it's only applicable legally to a fellow Jew. You want to go beyond what the rule and the law is? Great and we encourage you to do that, but um, the Torah wants us to be realistic. So let's begin. The Torah says it very, very explicitly. Take a look at the source sheet that Binyamin uh, included. Do not harbor hate for your fellow Jew. Um, we'll see what that means. And you shall reprove your neighbor and do not bear sin because of him. So I think really in order to understand this prohibition of harboring hate, we need to understand the other phrases in the verse and how those other phrases relate to the first phrase. So there are actually three different phrases in this pasuk. Number one, not to harbor hate for a fellow Jew. Uh, and it says lotisna, which means hate is an emotion. And it says bilvavecha, in your heart. So it's not necessarily referring to actually acting out on it. It's saying you're not even supposed to experience the, the feeling 
of that negative feeling of hate, of enmity for someone else in your heart. Which means you shall reprove your fellow. What does that mean, reprove your fellow? You're supposed to give what's called tochacha. We'll talk about that as well. You're actually supposed to say something when you see something. You remember that phrase? You see that you used to see that on the subway. Um, it means that if you see a fellow Jew involved in some kind of transgression of the Torah, you're supposed to say something to your friend. We'll get into that a little as well. That seems to really rub against um, the prevailing mentality in our society, which is that's between you and your creator. That's none of my business. Whatever you do is your business. You want to keep Shabbos, great. You don't want to keep Shabbos. That's your own business. It's not for me to say anything. And it seems to be the height of, it, 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 it seems like being judgmental. We're going to come back to that issue. And how does that relate to not harboring hate? Think about that for a minute. What's the relationship between the prohibition of harboring hate and saying something when you see something wrong? You see there is a connection. And then finally, veloti salav chet. Do not bear sin because of him. Clearly the most ambiguous phrase in the verse because it doesn't say what sin. And because of him, who's him? Don't bear sin because of him. It seems like just out of, out of context here. What is the prohibition of bearing sin, which we don't even know what sin or who it's referring to. What does it have to do with the prohibition of harboring hate? and saying something when you see something, reproving your neighbor when you see them doing something wrong. So the Ramban, the great Nachmanides, Nachmanides was a great rabbi who lived in Spain. He was a Kabbalist and also a great Talmudist. He was such a brilliant rabbinic scholar that he was the one chosen by the Jewish community to defend the Jews um, when the church was levying all of these uh, theological attacks on the Bible, on the Torah itself. And uh, we have these debates recorded between Pablo Christiani and the Ramban, Nachmanides. And Nachmanides says the following, and if you can follow with me, it's in the English here. The verse here is thus stating, Do not hate your brother in your heart when he does something to you against your will. Right? When someone offends you, someone does something to upset you, don't allow yourself to come to hate that person, right? But instead, you are to reprove him. You see, right away the Ramban tells us, Nachmanides, what's the relationship between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse? The part of the verse that says, don't hate your brother, and the, third, and the second part that says, say something. You want to know how to prevent yourself from hating someone when they offend you? When they do something against you, speak out. Say something. Don't cover it up. Look what he says. Instead, you are to reprove him, saying, Why did you do thus to me? And you will not bear sin because of him by covering up your hatred of him in your heart and not telling him. For when you will reprove him, he will justify himself before you so that you will have no cause to hate him. Meaning, if you keep your mouth shut, if you say nothing... When someone says something to offend you or they do something to upset you and you say nothing, then what's going to end up happening is it's going to build up in the heart. But when you say something, when you reprove him, you're forcing your friend to have to justify his actions. And when he justifies his actions, he's hopefully going to give some sort of reason why he made that nasty comment. Now, it might not be a satisfactory response but at least you're going to have, hear some kind of explanation for what you did, for what your friend did that upset you. Or he will regret his action and admit his sin. He might just say, oh, you're right, I shouldn't have said that. That was really wrong. Because sometimes we do things and we don't even know we're doing anything wrong. Sometimes we offend another person and we don't even realize that we have uh, somehow breached a sensitivity. We may not even be aware of it. And by you saying something to your friend, by you coming out and saying, you know, the other day we were in company with other people and I, something, some issue came up and you, you made that nasty comment and you're like, I did, I made a nasty comment. Yeah, don't you remember when you, I'm like, you're right. You know, when I said it, I was thinking this. I didn't realize that that would actually be offensive. 
I mean, there's a million possibilities. It could be that to that person who made the offensive comment, that it wasn't really offensive because they're projecting from their own situation. I'm not sensitive to that kind of issue. You know, let's say it's, um, I don't know, let's take an example. Um, you were in company with someone and you talk about their job and then you say, yeah, yeah, you know, he doesn't really take his job so seriously. And like, maybe you in general, don't take your job so seriously. So it's okay if somebody makes a joke about it, you're there, you're not there. I showed up on Zoom, but like I was half asleep. And this other person takes their job very, very seriously. They define their own sense of self according to their profession and their career, and, and you're mocking it. So it often we, we um, act towards others in terms of the way we think about ourselves, which is a natural thing, and therefore you need to say something. Howard's asking, what about a parent who says something offensive? I'll come back to that question in a minute. Very good question, Howard. So what the Ramban, Nachmanides, is telling us is that the reason that the Torah juxtaposes why it places the phrase, don't harbor hate, and what follows that phrase is say something, is that saying something is going to ultimately prevent you from harboring hate. Now, what about a parent who says something offensive? Very good question. It could be that a parent feels the right, a little more of a right, to not insult, but say something that you are sensitive about and that bothers you. Now, it all depends on your age, and it depends on the nature of the relationship. If you're a kid, a parent is permitted. A parent is required, really, to critique a child in a positive way, obviously. You have to do it in a smart manner. But what would it be if a parent didn't say something when the child was doing something inappropriate or even unethical? A parent is not parenting properly. But now you're 25 or 30, and now it just seems like you're butting into my business. A parent still has a responsibility when their son is 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 to still be a role model in terms of um, the way the child lives and behaves. But like everything in life, it's all the way you say it. So I would caution a parent, and I'm not saying I'm a perfect parent myself. I have children, you know, in high school and I have children in college now. I have one graduating college. I mean, and you have to, you have to speak to children differently based on their age. It's not so simple. But I think it's understood by children that you get a little more leeway with kids, with a parent. Parents should have the opportunity to, uh, to, to, to critique a child, even if the, the child is an adult already, as long as you do it in a respectful manner and not in front of other people as to, as to embarrass. Now, the Torah is replete with, well, the Talmud really is replete with stories of parents who, you know, of the, the lengths to which a child is supposed to go to show respect to a parent. So this is a crazy story involving Dana, the son of Natina, who was sitting amongst the Roman nobles, it says. He was a senator. And his, his mother came and spit in his face. And he said nothing. He did nothing. Now that passage in the Talmud is not trying to encourage parents or even say that that's an appropriate thing for a parent to do to a child. It's not. It's completely inappropriate. What the Talmud is doing by bringing up that story is saying how meritorious it was for Dana, the son of Natina, this person in the Talmud, who happened, by the way, not to be Jewish, that this, this, this person did not react. This person had such respect for his mother that even though his mother did something inappropriate, the child still did not lash back out and do anything. He just sort of accepted it. Again, this is not required behavior. That's not the required response of a child. But it is noting that behavior to, to teach us what meritorious behavior. That if a parent does something, that we shouldn't be so quick to react and it would be considered meritorious, not required according to Jewish law, but an act of great self-restraint for a child not to publicly humiliate the, the, the parent back. Um, uh, Deb is asking, I agree, but it seems kids today don't believe that. <laughs> um, yeah. Unfortunately, we're living in a difficult generation, Deb. I, I would agree. 
a lot of the stuff that kids get away with today would never fly in our generation. Deb and I are around the same age. Um, and um, it's true. Now, I wonder if your parents said that to you. Because I remember my parents saying to me, like when I was a kid, I would never say such a thing to a parent or I would never, you know. So I think there's been a little of a um, descending, uh, what they call in Hebrew, nistaklu hadarot, the generations have gone down a bit, uh, a lot actually. Um, Judaism very much believes in honoring and respecting one's parents. That's why we're not supposed to call our parents by their first names and we can be friends with our kids uh, also, but our first and primary role is to be their teachers and their mentors, and for that you need a, a modicum of, uh, of respect. But it's hard being a parent, because a parent also is not, is not supposed to do things to, you know, put their children in an awkward position either. Like what that woman did, that mother who spit on her child while she was sitting, while he was sitting amongst Roman nobles was clearly an inappropriate thing for the mother to do, and we have to be careful Kids are very, very sensitive, particularly when it comes to their parents. Um, all right, let's get back to the harboring hate. So what we see here is that we're not... Oh, you are so sweet. Thank you. Yeah, but... Oh, would you mind? Here, should I give it to you? How are you going to do it? You know, a little ball or something? No. Know. Should I bring it with? Just tell him to hold on one second. Hang on. Uh, Joe brought me um, pizza bagels. Uh, they're a little burnt, but I'm not complaining. You hear me complaining? <laughs> um, we're just giving a cup of water to wash. Jill, just a little cup and I can use this as the bowl. Thank you. Um, okay, Deb, I don't know if I really answered your question. I know it's a big issue, not so simple. And a lot of parents are feeling it now with their kids home uh, during COVID-19. It's, it's tough because I got a 23-year-old son who's home. You know, um, when you're 23, you don't, you're not really supposed to be home anymore. So it's not so simple. But it's nice spending the time. I'm just going to wash and then have some pizza bagel. Um, okay, I'm definitely making a mess on my desk. We'll make a blessing over the bread. Okay, thank you. It's delicious. Now, We've explained the first two phrases, don't harbor hate and reprove your neighbor, and don't bear sin because of him. Now the question is, what sin is the verse referring to? Sorry about that. Nachmanides writes that it's the sin of keeping quiet. Meaning, you're so important, says, um, it says Nachmanides, to speak up when you're offended, to say something when someone insults you, and not bottle it up. That when it says at the end of the verse, do not bear sin because of him, the Ramban says, what sin? The sin of lachasot sinato belibech, he says. To cover up the sin, the, to cover up how offended you are in your heart. That is sinful, to keep quiet. You think you're doing a big favor, you don't want to make a you don't want to have a confrontation. But you know what the problem is? You have to weigh these two things. When anyone ever does anything to upset you, and you don't want to say something because you don't want to make a mountain out of a mohill, whatever that expression is, you don't want to make the situation worse. It's really hot. Um, you need to weigh that against what are the consequences of remaining quiet? Because the consequence of remaining quiet, and now I'm going to let it slide. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to call this person out on that nasty comment he or she made about me. But then what effect is that going to have on you and your soul? And there's two issues with that. Number one, with the other person, because now you really develop um, a, 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 you know, negative feelings which could lead to hate, which you're not supposed to have in, your, in yourself. And number two, it's not healthy for you. It's negative energy that you're walking around with and you're allowing someone else's inappropriate behavior to now affect you internally. And the way you can get out of it is by saying something. Now you have to use a little common sense. You have to use a little common sense. Not every 
negative thing that happens to you should you point out to other people. If you do that, I think you run the risk of being seen as too difficult of a friend to have. If you become too difficult of a friend to be with, then people are going to stop hanging out with you because it's like, it's never good enough. It's never good enough because you know? no one's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Now, does that mean you shouldn't say anything? Not necessarily. You can still say something to your friend. It's all the way you do it. I just want to tell you, I so appreciate our friendship and our relationship, and I therefore feel so comfortable sharing with you. When you made that comment, it bothers me a little. Again, I wouldn't say it and do it for everything, because if you keep picking out every time somebody says or does something, and you're very sensitive, let's say, then that's what's going to end up happening. The other person's going to feel like it's impossible. You have to walk on eggshells around you. So you have to use a little common sense, a little seichel, as they say, when trying to figure out what to do here. Um, now, the very, very important idea in Judaism, um, is it ever appropriate to come to hate somebody? Is it? Are there some people that you should hate, actually? I'll let you answer that question. Do you think hate is always an inappropriate response? Because clearly the Torah is saying not to hate your fellow Jew. But let's say your fellow Jew is like a really evil, evil person. Um, what do you do? Um, I mean, Hitler, was Hitler inappropriate to hate Hitler? As my friend Shmuley Motech once said, the problem is, yeah, I think it is appropriate, Deb, to hate some people. Um, because how can you oppose them? How can you get other people to oppose them? Now, I'm not talking about someone with whom you disagree intellectually over some kind of issue. I'm talking about someone who really is doing terrible things and is not stopping from doing terrible things. It's one thing if they're stopping and they're apologizing and they want to do what's called in Hebrew tshuva. Then you have to, um, you know, you're supposed to try to forgive them and move on. But let's say the person is unrepentant. Let's say the person just downright evil and perpetuating these crimes against humanity and believes what they're doing is the right thing and is going to continue to do them. Does the Torah mean that you're not supposed to come to hate such an individual? No, it does not. And, and as really Shmuley Botech likes to say, how, how can you get other people to oppose? The only way... America is going to go to war with the Nazis as if they hate the Nazis. You don't kill people you don't hate. And that's why hate is not an inappropriate response in some extreme circumstances. But it's more the exception than it is the rule. The rule is don't harbor hate. But there are some exceptions. When someone is clearly evil and perpetuating um, you know, acts and crimes against the Torah and against humanity then you must come to hate that individual. Now, I know what you're saying, like, maybe we can just learn to hate the idea. And this is something I wanted to touch on as well. We live in this, um, what is it called, cancel culture? Did I mess that phrase up? Where we are just canceling people out because they made a mistake. People make mistakes, people sin, people do bad things. Um, and we, we tend to be a very unforgiving country, and I, I don't know if it's the country that's unforgiving the people, if it's the media that just loves to sell newspapers and, and, and commercials on TV, and so therefore they're gonna play up all the negative aspects of every candidate, of every person, constantly playing up all the bad things and therefore this person is even worthy of us listening to them. And it's a problem because there's no such thing as a perfect leader. There's no such thing as a perfect person. And we should not come to hate these kinds of individuals. We can, though, hate their policies. And that's a really important thing to do when arguing with someone. 
which is to focus the argument on the substance of what you're discussing and not the other person, not to personalize um, the argument. And this is something that the late and great Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, who just passed away recently, exemplified. I watched a bunch of clips of some of his great speeches. He was an extraordinary speaker, an orator. And in one of his speeches, he talked about not vilifying your opponent, but it's your intellectual opponent. That doesn't mean you start saying nasty or negative things about him or his family or the things he does outside of the argument you're having. Stick to the facts, stick to the argument. And you can vehemently oppose another person's position without being vehemently opposed to the existence of that person. And calling him a nasty individual and, and mean-spirited and... and um, there's no room for that. And unfortunately, that's, um, that's what our culture has devolved into to some degree. We have to fight against that. We have to learn how to respect opinions with which we disagree. And we have to show all other people love and respect, even if we disrespect what they're saying. If the person themselves is performing acts of atrocities against other people and they are you know, going up against basic tenets of who you are and what Judaism is about, then we need to oppose not only the policies, we need to take out the person. There are Hitlers in the world. And those people are worthy of hate. Not simply, well, I disagree with what they're saying. You can't, again, fight against someone. And when I mean fight, physically. And, and, and commit troops against a dictator if you're just, you know, we, we have an intellectual disagreement as to how to run the country. No, this man is killing people senselessly. He's an immoral person and he has to be taken out. There, it is appropriate to hate the person. But generally, we don't hate people. We might disagree vehemently with their positions and we argue passionately against the positions, but we don't personalize it. And then there's those exceptions, as we said before, of people really worthy of being hated themselves. Any questions or, uh, we see Howard is asking a question, what do you do when a policy separates a child from their parents? Maybe you can be more specific, Howard, but I'm already getting into those spates with my kids. Some of my kids tend to be a little more conservative, a little more to the right, some of them are a little more to the left. Makes for very... Um, passionate dinner discussion, and um, I'm trying to teach my kids that we can love each other being the same family, even if you have Democrats and Republicans in the same family. You know, somebody asked me this, actually, a guy from MGE, and he um, was set up with a girl, they went out and he really liked her. He said, but she's super liberal, he said to me. Like, you know, but she's super liberal. So I said, okay. Is it getting in the way of the relationship? No. You know, but... Now, one person's super liberal is another person's conservative. So it's all relative. But I said the day and age where conservatives and liberals can't date and marry or Democrats and Republicans, because it's become so contentious, and we're assigning such ill will to our opponents, our intellectual opponents, that's really awful. And, and th th there should be no room for that. And I, I shared this before, that although the Talmud is replete with debate, arguments between people like Hillel and Shammai, Abaye and Rava, they respected each other. In fact, and I, I think I shared this already, um, and I'll come back to politics and kids. I see Deb is making another comment about never discussing politics with your children. I think it's okay to discuss politics with the children. It's just the question is, can, can you figure out a way, and can your son or daughter figure out a way of having a civil discussion about the actual substance of the issues without going flipping off the handle and just like, you know, we can't even talk about this. That's unfortunately what's happened in our world, and it's sad if that's what happens at our dinner table too. Although they say you should never discuss politics and religion at dinner, 
Um, that's not necessarily with your own internal family. That's like with strangers and other people. But um, what I want to say about Shammai and Hillel is that even though these two great rabbinic scholars argued on a myriad of different issues, they never personalized the arguments. And in fact, every time the Talmud records a debate between Shammai and Hillel, it says Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Beit is house. The academy, the house of Shammai, the house of Hillel. They made it clear that these are debates over academic, important issues, relevant and important issues. But it was the house of Shammai, the house of... Because Shammai and Hillel themselves got along. Do you know that their children, Shammai and Hillel's children married within each other. That is so beautiful that we can marry, right? And conservatives, liberals, right, can marry. We just ask this question. Can they marry and have a connection with each other? Romantic connection, even though they are vehemently opposed on certain issues. Now, it might be that, that it won't work because uh, a, a liberal person's uh, outlook on life might be too dramatically different from a conservative when it comes to certain value issues in raising children, certain value issues in having a family, right? That, that could very well be that kind of um, butting of heads and, and they just can't get on the same page. And a husband and wife need to be on the same page. Uh, let's see, there's another point that's come up here. Deb, I've tried to discuss my views, uh, totally different views, so we've decided to to don't not... What are you trying to say, Deb? Yeah, one second. Oh, in other words, you guys decided we'll agree to disagree, basically. Yeah, sometimes that's what you're going to have to do. I've had that many times with my kids. When I see one kid is getting, they're yelling and screaming at the other. You're so close-minded. You're too open-minded. Um, and then some point, like, you know what, guys? I think we're done with this conversation. <laughs> this is not going anywhere. But it's really a sign of immaturity. Um, and we've become a very immature nation where we're just like digging ourselves into a hole and not recognizing that there's another point of view that might be just as legitimate, which you think is total nonsense. Okay, that's what it means to disagree. You think it's nonsense. But you don't say it's nonsense. You try to argue on the merits. I'm trying to encourage my kids to do that and give them the ability to argue intelligently and to say, here's why I disagree with that view. Your view is based on the following two premises. Well, I wanna challenge one of those two premises. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it accurately depicts reality. And here's my evidence, and here's my proof. And that's why it's really good. I don't know how many of you guys ever served on a debating team. You don't start attacking the other person and saying, you're a nasty son of a gun. You have no idea what the heck you're talking about. No, I'm going to attack your view for the following substantive reasons. It's not easy to do that, by the way. You have to keep your cool, and you have to kind of divorce your emotions from your thoughts, and not get sucked into a whole emotional back and forth and fight between you and someone else. And I will tell you, because we're not good at this, because we're, we're not getting this right in this country, um, we're not having the right conversations, we're also not getting the right leaders, in my opinion. Not. I'm not saying all the leaders are bad, and I'm not saying which ones I like better than the others. But, you know, I was watching Kevin's, uh, I don't know why I was on Kevin's Facebook page, Kevin from MGE, Kevin Wolf. And he had a really nice post about, I forgot the gentleman's name. Oh, he was a candidate, he was running on the Democratic Party. Uh, please don't see this as racist, but he happened to be Asian. Um, and I'm blanking on his name, if anybody remembers his name. He didn't last too long, so he's not so well known. But I was super impressed. I was watching a number of his debates. Um, with his uh, debates on with his Democratic opponents. And um, I'm like, this guy's great. He's smart. He's passionate. And he's never saying anything negative about other people when they make arguments that he disagrees with. He just gets right into the argument. He gets right into the argument and the, his tone, and that is not easy, by the way, and this is very relevant in a discussion about not hating, not allowing your emotions to get the best of you. 
to be able to actually maintain. Oh, Andrew Yang, thank you. Two people, Nathaniel Berman and Andrew Yang. Um, very impressive guy. And I, I was just thinking, I was telling this to one of my sons yesterday, Tom Weiss, and okay, so we got three, four Andrew Yangs, okay. Five, <laughs> okay. Um, and I thought, like, how amazing would it be if we had, um, during the debates, we had um, people really focused on the substance of the issues that they were discussing. They wouldn't be as fun to watch, okay? They wouldn't be as dramatic. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on the media. You know, the media is trying to get them to answer questions, but the media also wants to create a little fight because the fight will draw more people to watch the debate. And the more people watch the debate, the more they can charge for commercials on that network. It's unfortunately a lot about money. But it's doing us, the viewers and the voters, a disservice because you don't even really know what the different candidates stand for necessarily. Sometimes, and I don't know how much of the debate is drama over personality and how much of the debate is actually the substance of the issues, but I've watched in my own life how it went from almost all substance over the issues and very little about the personalities to, as time marched on, to more and more about their personalities and less and less about what their real views and attempted solutions at fixing some of America's biggest problems. And we suffer as a result. We suffer because if you can't keep two people in the rink long enough to stay focused on what they're arguing over, then how are you gonna figure out which person's approach makes more sense and therefore who I should vote for? Isn't that supposed to be the basis for voting? Which dude or dudette, excuse me, needs, you know, makes more sense and has a better chance of fixing the problems in, in any given society? You can't do that when you're focused and you're laughing at the other person and you're throwing dirt at them and all you're thinking about, well, you did this and you do that and you're corrupt and, and the whole thing is about their corruption. The whole thing is about their personality. It's not about their attempted solutions. And unfortunately, that's how you win elections today. You win elections by throwing mud at your opponent. And you know what it's gonna come down to, in my opinion? It's gonna come down to me and you, the viewers, not tolerating it anymore. When the candidates and their advisors start seeing that the people who are gonna be chosen for office are ultimately the ones with the best ideas, because the voters are not paying any more attention to the little dirt sling, you know, the fights of slinging dirt at each other anymore. It doesn't seem to be resonating anymore because the media and the different people surrounding these candidates are really trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator. They're trying to appeal to our more base instinct of like, I like this person, I hate this person. Not that I like the person or I hate the person, but I really think this person has good ideas. I really think this person this approach is gonna be a better approach. And therefore, I'm, gonna, I'm going to vote for this particular candidate over the other candidate. I know that sounds boring, and maybe that's not the way humans operate, but it's really the best way, in my opinion, for uh, us to be deciding who our leaders should be. Because charisma and charm and, and, and who can, you know, wheedle themselves out of like a, a, a tough situation better is not always the best indication for who's going to be the best leader. The best leader, in my opinion, is someone who has good policies and is intent on seeing those policies carried out in a given government. And of course, values and how much this individual um, you know, cares about the things that I care about and how much I like their personalities, of course those things factor in. And we'll never have a situation where we're just Mr. Spock and we're just analyzing ideas. Of course the person is major and is a major factor, but it, it seems to be the only thing. We're getting so far away from what are this person's ideas and is this person committed to implementing those ideas when they're in the hot seat? Because it's easy to promise things when you're campaigning. It's another thing entirely 
when you're in that position to see them through and to convince your colleagues and the people on the opposite side of the aisle, if you're a Democrat, the Republicans, if you're Republicans, the Democrats, to get them to see your way also and to get different groups uh, to work together and, and to develop bipartisan kind of support for certain legislation. It's not easy. But by continuing to celebrate and reward personality, fighting dirty, bringing up schmutz in the other person's background, I say all those things are off limits. If, 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 if I was running for it, or, or if, I, if I was a member of the Supreme Court and I can, you know, uh, we can enact new legislation that's from Congress, you know, what is fair game, what is not fair game? I would take personality, I'd take all this stuff off the plate. You always had people with flaws in office. You always had people who committed wrongdoings, always. That's why we have impeachment proceedings. That's why we have mechanisms to remove someone after they've done something wrong. Okay, and I know they're not perfect, but to, to spend so much time, and, and I want to use all of this to go back to my original point. Do not harbor hate in your brother by doing what? By saying something to the other person. And I would add, that was the first part. Now what we've been developing the last 15 minutes or so is by focusing not on the person, but by focusing on the information. Look what you just said. You, and, and, and stay away from the words. You always, don't speak in those kinds of broad terms. You always do this. You're this kind of person. Focus on the action. Focus on the activity. Like I'm saying, focus on the policy and not the person. Focus on what the person said that offended you. Focus on the behavior that you felt was inappropriate. Then people will not get as, as defensive. I'll give you a little example. I learned this in couples therapy. All the MG rabbis years ago went for uh, couples therapy, meaning we got licensed to give therapy to other couples. And it was helpful for our relationships too. We're also human beings with problems in our own relationships. And, uh, oh, it's 117. Um, but I want to share one device that I found really, really helpful that I think could be helpful with you, for you in dealing with anyone who offends or upsets you. So um, Dr. Gottfried, I think that was his name, in couples therapy said something really interesting. You come home from work and there on the floor is lying, um, I don't know, some article of clothing from your significant other, something that they left on the floor, and you're upset, you're like, you know, how many times have I said, please don't leave stuff over there, please put it away. So there are two ways of saying it. You can go over to your significant other and you can say, how many, how many times have I asked you to please not leave things on the floor? You know, you're, you're such a mess and such a slob and it's really bothering me. That's not a good way to do it. What you wanna say is, honey, <laughs> honey, when things like that are left on the floor. You wanna take the word you. Now, you could even say when you leave things on the floor, but you wanna focus it on the way it makes you feel. Because no one could argue with your feelings. When you leave things on the floor, it makes me feel like. Or when I find things on the floor, it makes me feel like. You don't really care about something that I care so much about. It brings this up in me. Bring it back to you. Because what you do is whenever you accuse someone of doing something wrong, even if legitimately they have done something wrong, and kids, this works the same way, they become defensive. And we become defensive. Freud said this, that we have defense mechanisms because we need to have a certain basic sense of self. We need to think enough of ourselves. And when other people point out our flaws, we immediately recoil and try to justify it or explain you do the same thing. You did something last week. It's true, maybe I did do something. What does that have to do with this? Nothing. But you've put the person on the defensive. The goal is don't put the person on the defensive. Say it in a way that demonstrates why it's upsetting you. You did this, this is the way it's making me feel. That often will help the other person respond positively. Oh, I didn't know you felt that way. Or, I'm sorry, I'll try to you know, be a little more considerate next time. You just want to take it off. Look what you did. You did it again. I'm showing it again. 
Very, very important. It's like couples therapy 101. And it's the same thing when your friend does something to offend you and and you want to prevent yourself from harboring hate like we've discussed, because the Torah says, do not harbor hate in your heart. Reprove him. But how do you reprove him? And by the way, Rashi says, don't bear sin refers to the sin of being malbin chavero berabim, of embarrassing your friend in public. You have to be very, very careful that when you're reproving someone, which is legitimate, the Torah is telling you to reprove, to say something when you see something. You offended me because this happened, and I'm sensitive to it. You should say that, but you can't say it with other people around. You have to be very, very careful to find the right time and the right place to make these kinds of comments. Don't blurt it out when it happens. Never blurt it out when you're feeling upset. Wait, calm yourself down, breathe a few times, and then approach the person at a ladder at another time and say it in this kind of way. You'll have, many, you'll have very, very different kinds of results. And the same thing going back to our political system and our divide, whether it's around your own Shabbat table, it's around your own dinner table, or it's on CNN or Fox News. We argue over the substance of the issues. We don't personalize the argument. There are times when we get personal, and that is for someone in an extreme case of a Hitler, God forbid, and there we hate the person himself. Otherwise, we focus whatever animosity we have to the substance of what the other person is arguing, not to who the other person is. We'll be able to learn so much more about how to solve problems in our society. We'll follow the great examples of Hillel and Shammai, who although they argued and fought, it was the academy of Hillel, the academy of Shammai. They respected each other in terms of who they were, but vehemently opposed each other on their policies and on some of the opinions that they held. We have to get this right. We have to start learning how to oppose policies, how to oppose opinions, but not degrading and denigrating the other person. If we can do that, we will be able to come up with better solutions for our problems in our society. If we can do that, and all of this, we will keep our friends. We will not allow petty problems and, 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 and sometimes you know, uh, really bad things that have happened to destroy the relationship because we figured out a way to repair the relationship by waiting for the right time, speaking, excuse me, alone to the other person, not to God forbid embarrass them, and trying to put what you experienced a little more on you. I know it sounds a little like flaky to do that, but you'll have better results. And do you want to be, you want to, you want to win? <laughs> or do you want to accomplish something? You know, I'll end with this story. And I remember one of my, my dear friends, Rabbi Ari Berman. He's now the president of Yeshiva University. Very proud of him. He's an amazing guy and a rabbi and figure in our community. Um, and I once went to him, I, I, I don't know, Jill and I once had like a argument, a fight over something. And I went to talk to him. He's a very close friend to talk to him. And he was giving me some advice. And I was like telling him about the principle of and what Jill was saying. And I was like, no, but this is the principle. And he said to me, great line. He says, Mark, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? <laughs> it was such a great line. Do you want to be right or do you want to be married? So if you want to be right, keep fighting the way you're fighting. And maybe you'll prove you're right, but you won't fix the relationship. That's what we want, we want good relationships. And you wanna know something too? Even when you're not trying to have a relationship with your opponent, if you're a liberal and he's a conservative, or vice versa, but you'll be right, but you won't have figured out a way to actually implement something productive and positive within government, within society, because if you've so offended the other person, you've so put them off and pushing them in the other corner, as opposed to focusing on the very issues and not the person. So my blessing to all of us is that we should increase respect and love in the community, and in doing so, being able to dial down the hate, the enmity, the passion that we're developing, unfortunately, for other people. It's keeping us from being connected to each other. And we shouldn't just be connected to people with, that we agree with. We should be able to have a level of respect and connection with people that we also disagree with. You can do that. 
if you focus on the substance of what you're arguing over. You can do that if you say something, but you do it in a way that's respectful, in a way that brings a little more on yourself. Good luck. We'll continue to talk about these issues uh, on, on subsequent classes because they're very, very important issues, but we continue to derive a lot of direction, of course, from the Torah. I want to thank you guys for all of the comments and insights. Uh, very true what you say, uh, reading from Deb. If everyone did this, it would be less hate. I appreciate that. Uh, Liesl, thank you for your thumbs up. And um, I don't want to mispronounce your name. It's all about compromising and respecting better to only be always right, right, uh, putting love first. Thank you, Rabbi. All right, I appreciate those, those, those very positive comments to me. And if you disagree, that's okay. We just have to say it right. Thanks, guys. Have a wonderful day. Tomorrow, we're going to meet, lunch, and learn. We have a, uh, we're going to focus on the Parsha of the week, Parsha Chukat, which is beautiful, uh, amazing lessons and messages from this week's Torah reading. Uh, and I think some of them are connected to what we're discussing today as well. So we'll continue the conversation. Have a good one. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.